Ahoy, and welcome to the Jolly Reader. I'm your host, Captain Book. I'm back. It's been like three months. So we moved from Kansas to Nebraska, and we were living in a tiny apartment for a while before we closed on our house. But now we are in our house, and we have none of our stuff. But luckily, I brought Jolly Reader things so I can record for you. Also, back in October, I graduated with a bachelor's in business. And if you believe it, I got a 4.0. Blacklight, our foster kitten, got adopted. My child is a straight-up ninja, a karate ninja. She's an orange belt. And I started Krav Maga. And also, the day I'm recording this, my husband's birthday, Josh, is tomorrow. So I'm going to wish him a happy birthday, even though by the time he hears this, it'll be next week. So happy birthday, Josh. Have fun being an old man. So I just want to thank you all for joining me. It's been a very, very long time, but I've seen the downloads and the love, and I really appreciate it. So this week, we are going to be focusing on Truly Devious, I can never say it normal, by Maureen Johnson. And this is part one. So this book is longer than the books we've done in the past. And I'm about a third of the way through chapters one through nine, pages one through 145. And since I'm doing three sections of the book, most likely, you're getting drum roll weekly episodes. So for the next this week and the next two weeks, you'll get an episode every Tuesday until we're done with this book. Also, this book is a series. It's one of three. So if it's good, we'll do the next two. If it's meh, we'll probably move on to something else. So we'll kind of see. I have very mixed feelings about this book. It starts off really strong and then it kind of dies off and it's kind of meh. So we'll see. So kind of a summary of the part we're reading is it goes back and forth between 1936 and present day, which I think is like 2017. And it's like I said, it's kind of drawn out and slow and there's a ton of characters and I'm terrible with names. So best of luck to all of us. And I'm starting to feel like the main character is kind of annoying. So I mean, she's like 16 or 17, but still. So, things to look forward to. Murder, obviously. (laughs) Lots of awkward teenage encounters. Pink bathtubs and champagne. More awkwardness. Multiple ransoms. And not enough murder. So, buckle up, because there's not that much. But hopefully, I can make it pretty entertaining. So, the book starts with the preface, or the preface depending on how fancy you are. And there's a map of Ellingham Academy, which is where all this takes place, both in 1936 and present day. And there's this creepy letter, and it's written with, like, someone cut out magazine or newspaper letters, and they glued them to a piece of paper and made this note in poem form. So I'll just read that. Look a riddle, time for fun. Should we use a rope or gun? Knives are sharp and gleam so pretty. Poison slow, which is a pity. Fire's festive, drowning slow. Hanging's a ropey way to go. A broken head, a nasty fall. A car colliding with a wall. Bombs make a very jolly noise. Such ways to punish naughty boys. What shall we use? We can't decide. Just like you cannot run or hide. Ha ha. Truly devious. So when I first read this, 
I was a little confused that it says naughty boys because on the back cover, it like specifically says that this guy Ellingham's wife and daughter go missing. But I would assume they're talking about Ellingham like the man, but we'll get into that a little bit more. So the next thing we see is it's April 13th, 1936, and it's 6 p.m. And the chapter starts with just a quote that says, you know, I can't let you leave, which is unfortunate. So we meet Dolores Dottie Epstein. She's 14 years old. What? And in the 11th grade, why is she 14? Okay, I'm going to double check this. Hold on a second. Okay, well, apparently she's 14 and in 11th grade. She's a genius. So starts off, she's sent to the principal's office and she doesn't know why. And she kind of talks about how she's gotten in trouble before. She'd go find secret places in the school and steal books or whatever. So she's a genius and she thinks school is pointless, which, I mean, I don't know. She thinks that like normal public school is pretty pointless. I don't know what it was like in 1936, but it probably wasn't great for genius girls. So anyways, Dottie doesn't have bad intentions, but she just kind of does like mischievous things. So she goes to the principal's Mr. Phillips and is introduced to the super rich and super famous Albert Ellingham. He I have in my notes, he has real pedophile vibes. Cannot confirm or deny this, but he's like really weird and he's like really interested in bringing children to the school. I don't really like it. But anyways, he describes learning as a game, which is also kind of weird. Like the way he says it, it's creepy. It's not like learning should be fun. It's just like, it's all a game here. Mm. Ugh. Also, no proof he's a pedophile. It just makes me uncomfortable. So he's opening a school for smart kids to learn at their own pace. And he says that she's the perfect candidate, which grooming anyways. And he selects 30 students from various schools. So Dottie tells him that her parents don't have any money. And he says that the school is free, which is also like red flags all over the place. He says she is there as a guest if she accepts. And it's just, I don't know. He has super creeper vibes. I'm like really upset about this. So a month later, he gives her a train ticket and $50, which super weird also. And this was back in 1936. So that's a lot of money. She travels from where she lives in New York to the mountains of Vermont. And I have run girl, you in danger, which turns out to be true. So (laughs) Dottie lives in the Minerva house, which on campus, they're just like student housing because they live there year round. And she just lives in this specific house. It comes around. So Mr. Ellingham also lives on campus with his wife, Iris, and his daughter, Alice, who's three, which I hate because my daughter is five and her name is Allie or Allison or could be Alice. We just don't call her that. Anyways, So their house is like this big mansion in the center of campus. And he would have fancy, like famous people come visit on the weekends and they would leave their stuff everywhere. So like Dottie goes straight Little Mermaid and she picks up all the dingle hoppers and stuff she can find and collects them like silver lighters and high heels and champagne glasses and stuff. And we're told that the kids are allowed to work at their own pace so they can like explore campus and stuff like they don't really have like set classes and things like that so she's out in the woods and finds this secret underground tunnel she describes it as like a sewer tunnel in new york and she goes down into it and there's a door 
like down the hall of the sewer tunnel, I guess. And she opens it and it's a speakeasy, which she recognizes because apparently they're all over the place in New York, but also she's 14. So I don't know how she knows what a speakeasy is, but here we are. And in that room, there's a ladder that leads upward into a domed room that's on a small island in the middle of a lake that's behind the Ellingham house. And she decides, this is like the first week of school. So she decides this is going to be her secret nook and she's going to like spend a lot of time there reading. And she says, since she goes during the day and stuff, no one's there partying and the people only come on the weekends. And she also says that even if she did get caught, Mr. Ellingham's so kind, he probably wouldn't even care. So this was in March. No, this was in April. Okay, anyways, maybe this wasn't the first week of school. I have no idea. So... In April, Dottie sneaks out to her secret spot and she takes a Sherlock Holmes book and someone comes up the ladder entry. So she hides and there's like all these pillows and blankets. So she's like under a blanket and she's like blending in trying to be a pillow. And she peeks under the blanket and she sees this person lay out a flashlight, a rope, binoculars, and handcuffs. And she's waiting, waiting. She doesn't hear the hatch door, but it's been... I think she says she counts to like 500 or something. And they say hello and tell her to come out of hiding. And the stranger, she says, is someone that she's seen before but didn't know. Like someone she's seen come to the Ellingham house, but like obviously she doesn't know. It's not like one of her teachers or something. And they tell her that the items that they just laid out, the handcuffs and stuff, are for a game because Mr. Ellingham loves games and he would often set them up for guests and students. And Dottie confirms this to us that this is something he does do. So maybe this is not going to end terribly. And the person tells her to keep reading her book like, oh, I didn't mean to bother you. Just keep reading. And she secretly with like a pencil she keeps up her sleeve underlines a sentence in the book, but we don't know what that is. And I still don't know, but obviously that book's going to be found at some point. And she does that with the purpose of if something bad happens to her, maybe someone will find this and see it as a message. So she tells the stranger, okay, well, I have curfew. I better start going back. And she goes to leave and the stranger apologizes and says, you know, I can't let you leave. Like we see at the beginning of the preface. So she decides, well, gotta make a run for it. So she jumps down the hole into the speakeasy, but I guess it's pretty far and she's really injured. She describes like warm liquid around her, AKA blood. And she like can't move and can't get up to get away. And the person comes down the ladder and says, I wish you hadn't come here. I really do. And then the person ends Dottie. She dies. So I just kind of make a note before I move on. In the chapter, they only say the person. They don't say male or female. So no hints there. So then the next section is an excerpt from Murders on the Mountain, The Ellingham Affair. Uh, it talks about how whimsy and eccentric Mr. Ellingham is and that he found Mount Morgan, nicknamed Mount Hatchet, the big axe, because it looks like one, I guess. And he decided to buy the land and build a school there and his home. And he also put in roads, but they're like dirt roads and power lines so he can start this school. And 
all over the school and the grounds. There are secret tunnels and fake windows and doors that lead to nowhere. And he didn't even know where all of them were. He just said to the architects, surprise me with all this weird secret stuff, which is kind of cool. Like if I built a house, that might be something I consider. So the excerpt just talks about that truly devious struck in April 1936. And now the school is famous for murders, which obviously is not great. Okay, so 10 minutes later, we're at chapter one. And it's present day. And like I said, I think it's supposed to be 2017. So we meet our main character, Stephanie, quote unquote, Stevie Bell. She's from Pittsburgh and she's a junior. And this is her first year at Ellingham Academy. So the Academy is just a two-year program and it's just for juniors and seniors. She's kind of a misfit, which that's an understatement. That was when I was first reading it. She is definitely a misfit. And her parents don't really understand why she got accepted because the school's for geniuses. And it's not that she's not smart. She's just not smart in like a classic way. Her roommates and stuff are engineers and like these really good artists. And she's just like, I like true crime. Like maybe I'm a genius. Who freaking knows? So anyways, (laughs) she listens to true crime podcasts. Yes, same. And most of her friends she met online on murder mystery boards, which I didn't even know was a thing, but probably should be careful about that. So she will be staying in the Minerva house, which we obviously know that's where Dottie stayed. And I can't confirm, but like, I'm assuming they also are in the same room just by like the descriptions. And I'm assuming at some point she's going to find something that's like, oh, this was Dottie's old room and she left this note or this is what she was like or whatever. But that hasn't happened yet because the book's a thousand years long. So anyways, she's staying at the Minerva house with Janelle and Nate, assuming she met these two on one of the murder mystery boards or like maybe when she got accepted into the school, she contacted them. I'm not 100% sure. So Janelle's from Chicago And she loves engineering and STEM programs. And she texts Stevie daily and they're like fast friends, even though they've never met. And Nate is a prolific writer. He has like a really long novel, sci-fi novel, maybe not sci-fi, fantasy novel. And he like never replies to text. So (laughs) I don't know what caused me to write this, but it says Steven's parents are meh. They basically think she's a weirdo. They're not wrong. They fight with her all the time and are happy with sending her to boarding school. They also seem entitled. Okay, so Stevie describes the application for Ellingham. It just says, if you want to be considered, get in touch. And you just send whatever you felt like was fit to try to get into the special school. And it doesn't say exactly what she sends in. But later on, her advisor says it's like was one of the most unique applications he had seen. And I'm assuming it was about true crime. So whatever. So like I said, they accept 50 students each year and it's a two-year program. This part was really weird and uncalled for. So Stevie's mom is really overly attached to Stevie's hair. And I was like tangled much. And she cried when Stevie cut off her hair and threatened to not let her go away to school, which is really freaking weird because I'm assuming she's like a teenager and who cares? Hair grows back. And then I have an all caps, don't be this mom. So they're like her and her parents are in a coach because the roads are really weird up there because it's on a mountain. So they take a coach with another family to the school. And Stevie's mom 
is like insistent that Stevie talks to this girl that's sitting in the coach. She's like nudging Stevie and's like, introduce yourself. So Stevie's like, hey, I'm Stevie. I like true crime and I'm super weird. And this girl's super short and she's like, okay, I'm Jermaine Brat. Bat? Bat? I don't know how to say her last name. Anyways, her name's Jermaine. And doesn't say anything else and keeps looking at her phone. And Stevie's like, okay, good enough. And Stevie's mom's like, nope, make friends. Like, ugh, make friends. I hate that. I hate everything about that. So... Jermaine was short and uninterested with the conversation, so Stevie's mom's like, fine, I give up. She, being Stevie, describes the creepy path up to the academy that has two sphinx at the gate, and her mom says something like, that's a weird sculpture or something, and Stevie explains that they're sphinx, and you have to answer a riddle to enter, like, the whole mythology of the sphinx, and then she's like, not to be confused with Spanx, which is women's pantyhose or whatever. I don't exactly know what Spanx are, but it's still really awkward. So everyone's looking at her like she's a weirdo because she is. She says her mom's look says, we kind of wanted the going out shopping prom going type and we got this weird creepy one. We love it, but what is it talking about ever? I was like, well, I don't know. I'm sure my parents kind of felt that about me, but I'm not this weird. Okay, I am this weird. I'm not this uncomfortably awkward in social situations. So anyways, Stevie begins to doubt her acceptance and it's basically like, it's too late now. So chapter two, we're still in present day with Stevie. It's usually like two with Stevie, one in 1936, two with Stevie, one in 1936. So keep up. So Stevie describes the grounds and how they're covered with like authentic Greek and Roman statues. And they meet the groundskeeper, Mark Parsons. He's like in his 30s. I'm glad she described him as younger because I was about to feel personally attacked. So (laughs) he tells them that everyone wants to stay in the Minerva house. I guess like really popular. And I don't know if that's because that's where Dottie was staying before she got murdered or if it's just like a nicer house than the other ones. But I don't know. They don't really say. So when they get to Minerva, she sees craft supplies on a table and they meet Dr. Nell Pixwell, but everyone just calls her Pixie or Pix, I guess. Whatever. I'm probably going to end up calling her Pixie because I can't read, apparently. So, anyways, Pix is the faculty like housemaster. So she's like the mama bear of and makes sure they're coming in on their curfew and stuff. So she has a shaved head and full tattoo sleeves, which Stevie's parents are like, whoa. And Stevie realizes that the craft supplies on the table are teeth, which her mother is horrified, which. I don't know. Same, right? What the heck? So her mother is like, uh, are those teeth? And Pixie's like, yep. And just picks them up. See, her name's not Pixie. It's Pix. But anyways, she just picks them up and puts them away. And Stevie verbally like deduces to the group that Pix is an archaeologist based on things she noticed, like an Egyptian tattoo and the teeth. And I think she like knew who Pix was before because later on she talks about researching everyone, but whatever. So... Stevie's dad makes a condescending joke about how Stevie thinks she's Sherlock Holmes, which is chilling at this point because that's what Dottie was reading. Anyways, so Pixie says, like, nothing's wrong with that. Everyone loves Sherlock. Truth. Especially the Robert Downey Jr. version. Anyways, Pix shows them around the house, including this weird secret bathroom. You have to, like, go through a revolving door and then there's, like, a bathtub. And she says that, like, most people use it to study, but it's not used often because there's a spider issue, apparently. 
<sighs> don't even get me started with that. There was 10,000 freaking spiders in my in the apartment we stayed in while we were looking for a house. Like, literally, I would kill, like, seven spiders a day. Anyways, no spiders here at this new house. So, where am I at? Okay, Pixie tells them about curfew. It's 10 o'clock on weekdays, 11 o'clock on weekends. And their curfew is regulated through, like, electronically. So, they all have student IDs that they have to scan in when they come home. And Pixie picks whatever she hangs out in the common room and stuff so she'll like catch them so she takes stevie to her room minerva 2 and stevie observes the layers of paint and wishes to scrape it all away to learn its secrets so that's kind of what i was talking about like maybe Dottie left something so now it's april 13th 1936 6 45 p.m so this is 45 minutes after the start of Dottie's section that we started in the beginning So Albert Ellingham arrives home with his secretary, Robert McKenzie, and Robert spends the whole time trying to convince Albert to travel to Philadelphia for business, something Albert basically ignores him on, but like finally agrees. It's kind of a waste of several pages. Anyways, so they're going to have dinner and he's informed that Mrs. Ellingham and Alice are still out on their afternoon drive, but it's like almost seven o'clock. So Albert insists that him and Robert play a game while they wait. And he's like, there's nothing so serious as a game. He's so weird about the games. Anyways, Robert basically is like, yeah, he's my boss. So guess we're playing a game. And it talks about how Albert requires everyone, even the employees, to play Monopoly once a week because it's like right when Monopoly was invented. And there's monthly tournaments. Also super weird and horrible. What kind of game do you want to play once a week? Because it's definitely not Monopoly. I will note that we got Booopoly for Christmas and it's awesome. Anyways, Albert shares a riddle with Mackenzie that he came up with. And he says, what serves on either side if you wish to hide may protect you from your foe or show him where to go. And the answer, give you a second to think about it, is a door. When he's in the middle of telling this riddle, they are interrupted by the butler, Montgomery, who says there's an urgent phone call for Albert. And Albert picks up the phone and a voice says, I have your wife and daughter. (laughs) I don't know why anyone, like no one can tell if this is male or female. I get this author trying to keep it a mystery, but like realistically, hello. So that's how that section ends. Now we're on to chapter three. So we're back with Stevie. We start getting to know Stevie a little bit better, unfortunately. So she basically wants to be a crime scene investigator, which is totally what I wanted to be when I was little. And her old high school was normal, but not very accepting of such dreams, which that's kind of weird because that's not a super odd career path. You just go be a police officer or you go to the academy or you join the CIA or whatever. It's not like, I want to be a podcaster. (laughs) Just saying. So anyways, self-burn. So she says this is why she half-jokingly applied to Ellingham Academy. She describes her room there and how they provided some of the essentials for quote-unquote survival because they live on a mountain. So she has a military-grade flashlight, which don't even get my husband started about military-grade. Maybe I should put this in the outtakes, but military stuff falls apart. 
So advertising something as military grade, it's not that great. Anyways, she also has what she describes as tennis rackets. It's like the things you attach to the bottom of your shoes to make snowshoes so you can walk on deep snow. So Stevie turns on a podcast about H.H. Holmes, which is funny because my husband wrote a paper on H.H. Holmes. And it's talking about her unpacking. And then it also like randomly says like gruesome snippets. If you know anything about H.H. Holmes, he had like a murder house. He built a mansion just to like murder people in really horrible ways. So anyways, she takes out her books and she organizes them old to new. So Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, criminal psychology, which I don't really like that way of organizing books, but okay. And she talks about not being one for fashion, but she does have a red raincoat that used to belong to her grandmother. And I'm really sorry for all the details. I literally cannot tell what's going to be important or not. So then it says, then Stevie turns and sees a zombie. (sighs) And you're like, what? And we meet her housemate, Hayes Major. He's basically your classic stuck up prick. And he's a year older. He's a YouTube star for zombie survival. That's the whole zombie thing. And I put that might come in handy. So anyways, she describes his YouTube channel as a good storyline, but his acting is terrible, but he's attractive. So it's good enough for some people. And he asked Stevie to help him because the boys are on the second floor. So he asked her to help him bring up his stuff to his room. And she carries most of the heavy stuff. And he like drones on about having an important call in LA and how he's so famous and they want to make a movie deal. And she tells us that he has some sort of love triangle with a girl named Beth Brave and he got in a fight with her ex, Lars Jackson, big who cares. So he doesn't even ask Stevie's names. And he's like, okay, bye. Thanks for carrying out my stuff. And she has no backbone. So she's like, okay, bye. <sighs> Don't even get me started. So, okay. So it's April 13, 1936 and it's 7.15 PM. Oh, so this says I should read page 47, the phone call Albert Ellingham gets. Okay. We have your wife and daughter. Do exactly as we say if you want them to live. Do not call the police. We know if you have. We have eyes on the police station. Take 25000 out of the safe. It means dollars. Come to the lake yourself. Get into a boat with the money and come to the island. You have 15 minutes. And the line goes dead. So Ellingham tells his butler, basically, go put the school on lockdown. And then he goes into his office with his secretary, Robert, and gets all the money he has in the safe, which is 23,000, which is 2,000 short. But he's like, this is all I have. So they're just going to have to deal with it. If they're tracking the police and have eyes on the station, you think they know how much money he has in his safe. But anyways, Ellingham tells Robert, who's been urging him to call the police to call, quote unquote, Marsh which no one ever calls the police. It's so stupid. Just call them. They tell you not to call for a reason, so maybe you should do it. Don't scream or I'll kill you. You probably should just scream and risk it because they're going to kill you either way. So anyways, he tells Robert to call Marsh and bring him to the school under like false pretenses and no one can know anything about what's going on. So Ellingham gets in a boat and rows to the island and someone, still don't know guy or girl, tells him to get out. They're shining a light into his eyes like a flashlight and have a scarf pulled up so he can't see them, but you would still think he'd know their gender. They have a thick accent that they're trying to hide. They tell him to throw the money down the hole to the speakeasy, and then they knock Albert unconscious. Then we go to chapter four. 
So it's going from these really interesting, oh my gosh, this is like high stress, this person was murdered, there's ransom money, to like, I'm a teenager and I'm uncomfortable. And I really don't like that, but we're on this train already. Chapter four, we meet more of the housemates. Element, quote unquote, Ellie Walker. She's a senior. Her room is down by the weird bathroom and she's awesome, I put She's super accepting. She has tattoos and dreads and wears a short skirt, which Stevie's parents are very, like, upset about. She asks Pix why it's hot as balls in the house, and she went to Paris over the summer, and she's an artist. And then Nate walks in. His room's upstairs, and he's wearing a shirt that says, if you can read this shirt, you're too close. This is pre-COVID, but it's still really funny. So Stevie awkwardly tries to shake his hand. It's like, did you not just read the shirt? And he reluctantly does it, but like read the freaking room or the shirt. So Ellie asks why Stevie's there because everyone comes because they have like a special skill or something they want to pursue that normal schools can't encourage. So she's like, why are you there? And Stevie is like, I don't even know how to explain what I want. So she just says, I'm here to study crime. And Ellie's like, to solve it or commit it? And she's like, oh, because of those good murders here. She like realizes that Stevie wants to look at the Ellinghams or whatever. So Stevie's parents come up to back to the house with Nate's parents and everyone is super uncomfortable. And her parents are not amused by Ellie's look. But I am. Stevie's parents are getting ready to leave and they're like, are you sure you have your meds? Let's just pull them out. So she takes Lexapro, which is an antidepressant, and she takes Ativan as needed, which is for anxiety. No judgment. So they basically tell Stevie that she can come home at any time and Stevie takes it as them saying that she doesn't belong there, which is so dumb because she takes every statement that everyone says and takes it super personally and it's wildly annoying. Chapter five, we meet Janelle, who is who Stevie's been corresponding with through text and stuff. And her room is next to Stevie's and their fireplaces are back to back. She comes from a very successful family. Both her parents are doctors and her brothers do like successful stuff, too. And she is outgoing and confident and very likable. She wants to see Nate So they go to his room, which is a hot mess. Stevie and Janelle notice a box of odds and ends, and he like shuts in and says he collects things without further discussion. It's not like creepy stuff, but it's just like weird stuff. Pixie calls them to go on the campus tour. So it's just the first year, so it's the three of them. The campus tour is led by Kaz. Stevie describes everything, and it's basically extravagant and... There's like just a mismatch of high school students on the tour. She describes some of them, but it's kind of irrelevant. So the right side of campus is housing and they call it wet campus because it's by the lake or the river or whatever. And left side is classrooms and things like that. And they call that dry campus. I don't know if that's relevant, but whatever. So there's a great house, which is Ellingham home. And it's just in the middle of campus and everything kind of like circles around it. So Stevie is looking up at a window in the Ellingham house and Janelle asks her why she's so focused on the specific window. And Stevie explains that those were the windows that Flora Robinson, Iris Ellingham's best friend, was looking out of the night she was kidnapped. So Flora was a suspect because she gave an odd interview and there's no further details on that. So they go into the library and they say it has half a million books, which is insane including the Mark Sherlock Holmes book, I'm sure. But like also, 
do you think they returned that to the library? Because I feel like that should have been part of evidence. Anyways, she describes the library as looking like a church straight out of the Last Crusade of Indiana Jones. And the librarian is Kyoko Obi. I hope I said that right. Anyways, Obi-Wan over here. No, I'm just kidding. So there's a study yurt. Oh, just moving on. Next thing. So there's a study yurt where most students sleep, but it can be used for quote unquote all kinds of things. And there's a random girl, Vi, Harper Tomo, and she has like transition lenses. Like she taps them and they go dark or they go light, whatever. And she calls them magic. And Janelle gets all technical about it. And it's like, oh, it's blah, blah, blah. And something flashes between them. Stevie gets all worried about competing for Janelle's friendship. But the interaction was not friendship. It was flirtatious. Stevie's just blind or an idiot. So... There's a walled garden that's being worked on, like it's under construction, and it leads to the lake and is not part of the tour. So they're still on the tour. They enter the art barn, which is original to the state and is being expanded. Then they go to the main house and there's a painting of Mr. and Mrs. Ellingham and a huge study. I don't know. It's just trying to like connect the stuff you know from the 1936 version to what she's seeing today. I hope it becomes important because I just wasted five minutes on this tour. So anyways, they meet security Larry and he knows everyone and he's no nonsense. And he tells them don't go into areas that say keep out because they are not structurally sound. Stevie tells Janelle that means the secret tunnels is like what he's referring to. So they meet the head of the school, Dr. Charles Scott. He's super casual, super whimsy. He asks them to thank Alice Ellingham like verbally say hey thanks because she's like the patron of the school and everyone like awkwardly like says it they audibly thank someone not there and who's probably dead now side note story we went to the bahamas for our honeymoon and there was robert the doll he's like haunted he's been on a bunch of shows whatever and they told us before you take pictures in this room with him to ask him permission robert can i take a picture and of course we're all like that's super lame So I didn't ask him permission and I literally went to take a picture and my camera turned off and I was like, uh, okay, Robert creep. It's literally a doll in a glass case. So then I was like, this is dumb. And I was like, Robert, can I take a picture of you? And my camera turns on. You can ask my husband. Well, you can't find him on social media, I guess. This happened. It was crazy. And then like after I took a few pictures, my battery went to zero. And then when we got up to the gift shop, my battery was full again. It was the most insane thing. Okay. Side note. (laughs) Technically, uh, getting back to the story, technically the whole estate belongs to Alice and she's just considered a missing person since 1936. So like the small group or whatever is asking Stevie what happened because, you know, like Stevie studies it. So she takes Janelle, Nate, and Vi all to the walled garden and they talk about, oh, we shouldn't be here, but it's not blocked off and there's no like don't enter sign, but they probably shouldn't be in there. Okay. So they go through the walled garden and they're by a greenhouse and they see a large hole, which is the drained lake. And Stevie talks about how Iris was a champion swimmer, so Albert built the lake, it's a man-made lake, and then he later drained it when a psychic told him that Alice was in the lake, and they just never refilled it, and she obviously wasn't in there. So, they could see the dome, so I'm assuming if the lake's empty, you just, like, walk across to the dome where Dottie was murdered. Nate asks about Alice, 
And Stevie just kind of says, even though Albert knew or was like pretty sure that Alice was dead, he opened the school two years later. So it would be lively if she ever came back, which is so weird. And then there's a secret file made by Alice's nanny with information that would confirm if she was the person, like if someone came to claim the fortune saying they're Alice, like this secret file would confirm or deny if it was a real Alice, but this was all like pre-DNA testing. So no one knows what's in the file, but the whole place is to be inherited by Alice. They all decide to leave because they're pretty sure the area is off limits, even though the gate was open. April 13, 1936, 8 p.m. Albert apparently made his way back after being knocked out. They don't really talk about it, but this whole section by Flora's perspective, which is Iris's best friend. She worked in the speakeasy and is like very aware when things aren't right because she'd have to like dump the booze if police came and stuff. She says that normally Iris would only be gone for an hour or two, but it's been eight hours. So she's like looking out her window and she sees George Marsh show up. She talks about knowing him very well and that she could tell he's there on business because he seems so serious. And he's a former New York police officer and he's Albert's main security man. He saved Albert's life from a car bomb. And so now they're like in debt to each other. Flora, this part's weird and unexplained, but she goes looking for a pink silk handbag in Iris's closet and she finds it and a maid asks her, like knocks on the door, okay, come downstairs immediately. So she takes a small compact out of the handbag and like slips it into her dress, but we don't know what's in the compact or why she's doing this. She's taken into the office and asked if she knows what direction Iris left to go driving and things like that. And she says she doesn't know. And she asks what's wrong. They send her away without an answer. So Flora sneaks into the ballroom, which is next to the offices. She finds like this secret door that Iris once showed her and it leads her to a door that goes into the office so she can listen in. So she cracks the door and she's listening to what they're saying. The men are talking about the letter that came earlier that week on a Thursday. I'm not really sure what day of the week this is supposed to be. But anyways, and the letter is the time for fun, whatever. I'm going to kill you with a rope or gun. No, that we read at the beginning. So the phone rings and the people on the other end are like, we know you called the police. We know George is there. And we specifically told you don't do that. So, as punishment, we're demanding jewelry and whatever other valuables you can find to be brought to us by George, the police officer, as trade for Iris and Alice. They give him directions. It's about 30 minutes away, and it leads to, like, a dirt road. And I think they have, like, an hour to do this. So, George agrees and tells Albert to lock down the school. And then Albert, and he's like, Albert, do you have a pistol? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, okay, lock all the doors and stay put. So if, and then George says, if he's not back by 1 a.m., they should call all the police in, the SWAT and stuff, which they should do that in the first place. I don't know why they're waiting. So George leaves to go do this delivery and Flora faints. And that's how that ends. So chapter six and I have, this is an odd chapter. So they're back at Minerva and they have to go over the rules and such with picks. So Ellie keeps persistently asking if David's coming, but we don't know who that is. So here's just kind of like a rundown of the rules. No drinking or drugs. The curfew thing we already talked about. The ID cards only give you access to certain areas. Guests or other students can only be in the common area or the kitchen, not up in the rooms. Foods need to be labeled in case of allergies. And no fires except for in the common area when Pixie is present. And 
she like specifically directs this at Ellie. Like, I'm serious. No fires. But I think that's kind of weird because don't they all have fireplaces in their room? And it's supposed to be super cold up there. Anyways, Janelle asks about soldering since she does like engineering and make stuff. And Pick says that's fine in the common area. So there's no unauthorized leaving of campus. There's only shuttles to Burlington on the weekends, which, by the way, is where the letter had originated from. They have nurses on campus and counselors, and a doctor comes thrice a week. Three times. After the meeting, Ellie whispers to Stevie and Janelle to meet her in that weird bathtub room in 15 minutes with mugs. They do. They go in there. So Ellie's in the tub in this odd clothing. They talk about a corset and weird stuff. And the tub water is pink. She's dyeing her clothes pink for the night, but like also her skin, I'm assuming. She's just a weirdo, but I kind of dig it. So she smuggled cheap champagne in from France where she was for the summer and she pours it into everyone's mugs. Stevie takes a couple sips of the drink, but Janelle just fakes drinking it. And then Ellie tells them how to get around all the rules they just heard. So she says, everyone knows that drinking happens. Just buy cheap alcohol and buy it often because it'll get confiscated. Picks will just make you dump it, but security Larry will be like super mad about it. You can buy it in that town that you get to go to on the weekends. But Larry has spies in the stores, so just ask someone on the street to buy it for you for like an extra $5. The way to get past curfews is you can either have someone else scan your card, but that won't work if Pixie's waiting in the common area, or you can scan in yourself and then sneak out a window later. And she said like the other security people vary on their reaction. It just kind of depends on how hard Larry's been on them. So Ellie has this long script tattoo on her arm. So they start talking about that and how she got it in France. And it says, my heart is a palace debased by the crowd. Ellie talks about drinking with her mom and then getting the tattoo by a street artist that her mom's lover knew. It's just like to compare like, the type of life she has compared to boring Stevie's life. So it's just like, you're a misfit. We get it. Okay. So also just side note, she talks about living in a commune for a while and how the schools there were really good. So bro. So then she talks about how the cell phone service and the internet sucks. Obviously, they're on a mountain. And Janelle is super upset by this because she always watches TV while she's building. And Ellie's like, I've never watched TV. I don't know. They're just all so different. So Ellie abruptly asks about their love lives. And Janelle talks about breaking up with her girlfriend, which no one's surprised by. But somehow, like, Stevie couldn't put together that she was flirting with Vi. I don't know. Hello? So then Ellie talks about being in a rut and then buying her saxophone Ruda. She's just a weirdo and she doesn't know how to play it. She mentions how the power goes out and things get freaky out of boredom and teenage hormones and all that. So then they are like, okay, what about you, Stevie? And Stevie says she's never really met anyone who was dot, 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 you know, whoever she's interested in. She talks about how like the champagne's making her be truthful And then she goes on to talk about how her parents work for Edward King, who's like this jerk senator of Pennsylvania, and he works out of their home, which is really weird. She doesn't say this, but like, does it not sound like she had some sort of affair with this guy? Because they're asking about her love life, and then she's just talking about how her parents work for this dude. But that doesn't, she doesn't say that. And later on, she says she's a virgin, but it's like, okay, Monica Lewinsky. Anyways, 
I did not have relations with Stevie. Okay, anyways. Ellie drops one of her rings under the tub and Stevie reaches down to get it and she feels something like scrape her arm and Ellie's like, oh, be careful because there's old pipes or something down there. And I'm like, hello, it's obviously a secret passageway, but that's not confirmed. I'm just saying it's pretty obvious. So Stevie then talks about how her parents really want her to partner up with someone and then Janelle's like, my parents are the opposite. School first, girls later. And they all basically agree that they should do what they want up there because their parents can't control their personal lives while they're away at the school. So Ellie tells the girls to get ready for a party. Stevie dresses casual and Janelle is in this all lemon outfit with lemon earrings because she wears lemons when she gets nervous, which is adorable. Ellie had coaxed reluctant Nate out of his room by playing her saxophone terribly. End of chapter. Chapter seven. We're almost there. Three more chapters. See, this is why I had to break it up. It's so long. It's only a third of the book. A whole bunch of nothing. Okay. Chapter seven. They go to this party that's in that weird yurt, the art yurt or whatever. I don't remember what it is. Anyways, on the way, Ellie spray paints this is art on one of the statues. And Nate comments that someone has a case of the try too hards, which is my favorite thing. As much as I like Ellie, Nate's snark is very like no nonsense, really makes me feel seen. So... (laughs) I don't know. This part is like really, really drawn out. I'm going to try to give you the highlights of it. So there's this first year that we never hear about again. Maris Coombs. No idea if I'm saying that right. She's like an opera singer. She's sitting with Hayes, who's the YouTube guy. Janelle finds Vi. Stevie's jealous, but I still don't think she realizes that they like each other. And it's not trying to steal the friendship thing. So then they all go sit with Vi's friends. Marco, Deshaun, and Millie, no idea if they're important, but I'm assuming those are her housemates. In walks a redhead named Gretchen that clearly has a problem with Hayes talking to Maris. And then Jermaine, the girl that was in the coach, is like super focused on Hayes and Maris too. And she's taking pictures and typing on her phone because she's a journalist. So like obviously scandal because he's famous and who cares? It's literally like 10 pages of this nonsense. So everyone starts going off to do their own thing. So it's just Nate and Stevie left together. And he has like a breakdown about his next book. So he wrote like this really long fantasy novel. And then now they're expecting like a sequel. And he says he lost inspiration because he was forced to write it now. He didn't just do it because he wanted to. And he hates himself for it. And he's sick of everyone describing him as a writer here. That's the whole reason he's going to school too. At this school specifically. So he's having a crisis. So... Now, Mystery David shows up and Ellie introduces him to like all the housemates. And Stevie says she has a feeling she's met him before, but she can't place it. And Ellie says that last year, all he did was smoke weed and play video games in his room. And he's like, well, I make video games for a living. So it was research or whatever. And then he like pulls a deck of cards out and he has Stevie randomly pick a card. And then with no effort, he's just like picking random cards to see if that's her card with no reason before it. And he obviously like fails to guess it. And it's super awkward and weird because Stevie's like really upset about it. And she's like, I don't understand this. Is this a dig at me? It's like, no, he's just some like stoner weirdo being dumb and like a teenager. She does that a lot. So just get used to it. So... David asks what Stevie does, and Janelle says she researches crime, which basically David's like, oh, you watch true crime, cool, whatever. And literally all she does is read books, watch shows, and listen to podcasts, which I do all those things. Big who cares? I'm not going to like some private school for no reason. 
If you can't tell, I have very mixed feelings about Stevie. So Ellie says she thought that the Ellingham case was solved. And Stevie explains that Anton Voracek confessed to the crime and was found guilty. But she believes he only confessed because he was on the stand. And no one's paying attention to her. So she just like stops talking. And she's like, I know when my time to shine's over. It's like, I don't. Okay. Anyway, so there's a flask being passed around. But Janelle, Nate, and Stevie all turn it down. And then Stevie gets all high and mighty about how it's gross because people are sharing spit. And like, does she, what do you think kissing is? Oh my gosh. And also remembers pre-COVID. So she has no point. Anyways, I'm just annoyed with how she thinks she's better than everyone because she won't swap a little spit as a teenager. Anyways, uh, Nate says he feels better about being a failed writer because Stevie's even more screwed than he is because he's like basically saying she's there for not a real thing. Agreed. The only thing that's like super annoying about this is like, you know, she's going to solve this case and be validated. (sighs) Okay. So Stevie's back in her room after the party and she talks about having severe and often panic attacks since she was 12 and no one knows why they started. Maybe she killed all her cousins in a house fire like our last book. Anyways, probably not. She's worried about having one that night because it's like her first night away from home. It's everything new, like all these triggers. And she doesn't want to take her as needed pill because it'll make it like groggy in the morning. So she turns on a gruesome podcast to calm her mind. And she says true crime and mystery is the medicine she prefers. She stays up all night and she makes a crime map of the Ellingham affair. Pictures with Iris, Alice, and Dottie. She has a picture of the poem that's written with the cutouts from the beginning of the book. Literally, this is the third time in the book, we're not even 100 pages in, that this poem is written full out. Like, I get it. I know it. So then I reread this part. It was kind of hard to follow. Apparently, throughout the investigation, there's this strange declaration from an unknown person. So I don't know if it's just like a letter or whatever. And it says, I am bad. I intend to do harm. I'm harming you now by inspiring fear. I am the knife. I am truly devious. So that's just kind of weird. Probably going to read it six more times. I have no idea when this was written, like if it was sent before the kidnapping or after or whatever. So we'll have to get more details on that. Then she adds a photo of Anton, who she thinks is innocent because he could barely speak English. So it would be unlikely that he could compose like this complex poem. And I kind of just say as like a side note, why do we think the kidnapper is the same person that wrote the truly devious note? As of right now, there's no like actual connection between the two. So could just be some dude or some gal or some person. Doesn't have to be the person that's writing all these notes. Super weird. So she talks about the detectives that came here before her to solve the case and like how they knew more than her or had more experience or whatever. But she knows she'll be the one to figure it out. And it's morning and she declares that a detective has arrived at Ellingham Academy. Big who cares. So April 14th, 1936, 4 a.m. Robert McKenzie, the secretary, is the only one who knows anything about anything in this section. So here we go. George Marsh, the New York police officer, he comes back to the state and he's like all beaten up and he obviously doesn't have the Ellingham girls. He said that like when he drove this pass, they blocked him with his car or with a car, and they ambushed him. They want $200,000 more in the next 24 hours because he involved the police. It's like punishment, which I thought this last drop-off was supposed to be punishment, but whatever. They agreed that Marsh could do the drop-off again. Mackenzie is like, uh, this will never end because you have endless cash. Like, this is stupid. We should call the police. Like, what is wrong with you? 
And, oh yeah, another valid point. So Mackenzie's like, um, the letter, like the Truly Divas letter, talks about murder, not kidnapping. Like, what the heck do you think is going to happen? So Ellingham does not care at all. And he's like, I'm going to phone New York because this small town, the bank can't get money fast enough. So they also like talk about the problem of this going public because there's a gajillion, like I think there's like 200 workers there. And then there, obviously there's all the students on campus. So like, obviously they don't want this to be public because they're not supposed to involve anyone. Oh, and they like told the people working in the house that Iris and the daughter Alice are staying with a friend or something. I don't know. Something no one believes. So then the group is informed that Dottie is missing. They obviously don't know if she's murdered yet. And they're going to search the grounds. And then he's like, we got to find an excuse to get all, everyone off campus. Because like, obviously no one's safe. Chapter eight starts with, I'm starting to dislike Stevie. <laughs> she reads way too much into all caps, everything. Okay, so she's nervous to take a shower since everyone shares a bathroom, but my understanding is the boys are upstairs, girls are downstairs, so logically they would use the bathroom on their particular floor, but still, I kind of understand. So she goes into the bathroom to take a shower and Ellie's in there and she just like walks out with a towel on her head and nothing else. Bold move there, Ellie. So... (laughs) Stevie comments on Ellie's confidence. She's kind of jealous of it, but like, obviously she doesn't want to go to that extent. Love yourself. We're all people. Anyways, so she goes downstairs for breakfast and this is like super awkward. Thanks, Stevie. So she has this really uncomfortable interaction with David in the kitchen where she's deliberately trying to pick out any insecurity of his because he jokes with her so like he's down there and she's looking at the cereal and he's like don't worry it's all free like pixie doesn't bill us at the end of the month lol and she immediately is thinking does he know i'm poor he's doing this on purpose he's such a jerk i'm gonna try to pick out what's gonna hurt him so she's like looking at him and he has his uneven sunburn so she's like oh you just moved to california like recently and he's like yeah but he doesn't really want to talk about it and then she sees that he has like this worn out rolex and she says something about like kids with daddy issues need therapy as like a dig at him. And he just kind of like laughs and sits down, which I'd be like, okay, freak. I don't know. It's really weird. She's like coming for him. But it's probably the stupid like boys punch girls on the playground because they like them. I don't know. The whole. Mm. Anyways. So everyone's down at the kitchen table now or whatever. And Janelle says that they have advisor meetings and Stevie and Nate all list who their advisors are, which I'm just now realizing I'm pretty sure Stevie's advisor is the head of the school. Anyways, David makes a bunch of jokes because Nate's advisor is a hard A, like she's really serious and makes people cry. And Nate's super stressed out that they're going to ask about his next book. So David makes this joke and he's like, oh, she'll make you cry like I did after I lost my virginity. And it's like, okay, they're teenagers. He's trying to look all big and bad like he's not a virgin. Immediately, Stevie's like, is he talking about my virginity? I think he's talking about my virginity. No, how would he even know that? I didn't even know that. That's so weird. Why would you think that? I'm pretty sure he's just talking about his and making a stupid joke because he's a stupid boy. I had to take a drink of water. I was getting like really upset about that. Okay, Janelle invites Stevie to check out the workshop later and then Hayes comes downstairs and joins them. So there's like more jokes from David and he's like asking, oh, so you have a movie deal, whatever. David's like, how did you come up with this idea or something? And he's like, oh, people love the undead referring to his like zombie 
YouTube or whatever. And Stevie says, that's my life. I work at the Monroeville Mall. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And I end up being an idiot, which I'll explain later. Maybe some of you get it, but I did not. I don't like zombie movies. I don't watch them at all. I think zombies are the worst type of supernatural character. They're not realistic and they're dumb and pointless and they're not even scary. Anyways, feel free to unfollow me for that. Okay, Hayes looks at her like all weird and the conversation just moves forward past that. So Hayes mentions to the group that he's been talking to a famous director about making a movie and they're all impressed, even Ellie who doesn't watch TV. And the chapter ends with Hayes basically saying that you have to get away for a while to come up with good ideas. Okay, chapter nine, we're here. We're at the end. It's this one and 1936. Okay, so... On the way to the main house, the Ellingham house for her meeting, Stevie talks about the butler Montgomery and he used to work for royalty and then he came to the Ellinghams and he was loyal to them even after the kidnapping and he died a few years after the girls were kidnapped, basically from being like so distraught about it. Understandably, because he's telling them all, go to the police and do all these things and no one listened to him. So she walks in and she talks to security Larry and they have like kind of a weird interaction and they're like talking about their favorite books on the Ellingham case. It seems like really weird, but I mean, he's the security guard at the school and he's supposed to know like everything about the students. So I guess he's just, I don't know. It's kind of weird. So she meets Nate's advisor, Dr. Quinn, and she's really tough and makes people uncomfortable. They overly describe her. She's like on her phone. She says, hey, and she keeps walking. Big who cares? So she meets her advisor, Dr. Charles Scott. So that is the head of the school or whatever. His office is in Iris's old bedroom, which I thought was really weird because is that not Albert's bedroom as well? Like, why does she have her own bedroom? And then like, does this feed into they had marital problems or something? But anyways, they specifically say it's Iris's old bedroom. So her advisor is like eccentric and he's nice and whatever. And he sets her up with classes like anatomy and statistics and things to follow like her crime path because she wants to be in the FBI now, apparently. He tells her that everyone is required to take Dr. Quinn's literature and history seminar. And and then he also explains that students normally do a small project the first year they're there that leads into a larger project their second year. So he's like, what do you want you to do your project on? Stevie announces that she wants to solve, not study, solve the Ellingham case. She thinks it was someone who was in the house at the time of the crime. With that, Charles takes her to this locked attic and he like lets her see the code and stuff and has all of Alice's stuff in it because a lot of the stuff they donated, but they can't because the estate belongs to Alice. So they have to keep all her stuff. So all this stuff includes a dollhouse that was made a few years after she disappeared. And it's like a super duper detailed replica of how the house looked at the time. So Charles asks her why he showed her that. And she's like, cause it's super cool. And I'm thinking so she can do research because now we have an exact replica of what the house looked like when she was kidnapped, how they kidnapped them, et cetera, et cetera. So he says that it's because she needs to understand that there are really people involved in this crime. Which I think is an important point because we all watch like true crime or listen to podcasts or whatever. And we forget that these are like real people and real families and these horrific things happen to a person. So anyways, Charles assigns her, Stevie, a smaller project that restores a human face to the tragedy. So she gets no further direction. She's like, is it paper? He's like, I don't know. You figure it out. It's whatever you want. So she's done with her meeting and Jermaine is down there and she looks super distraught after her meeting with Dr. Quinn. And then Stevie talks to Nate, who's waiting to be called to go see Dr. Quinn. 
medicine woman. Anyways, she asks Nate if he knows anything strange about Hayes this morning. And then I have, I'm an idiot. So I'm about to explain this. Nate says, you mean about Hayes not knowing anything about the Monroeville Mall, the setting of Dawn of the Dead, that super famous zombie thing? Yeah, I didn't either, but whatever. I don't make zombie YouTubes. Also, is that true? Is that really where it was? I have no idea. So anyways, Stevie's like, yeah. And then before she leaves, she talks to security Larry again, and it's horrible. So he asked her what she thought of the tour, meaning that like private upstairs room and the meeting. And she was like, oh, it was really good, whatever. And Larry's like, you'll be all right. They work you hard here, but no one ever dies from it. And Stevie thinks it's appropriate response, which it's never, not in any situation, is to say, I guess if you do, you can just take the body out into the woods and bury it. And she like smiles and is like, that's a really weird thing to say. And then she's like, he's like not amused by it. So then she's like, mm, I guess this is just not like a place you'd go- joke about dead bodies. Ah, oh, Stevie. No one cares about your virginity and stop saying you're going to bury people in the woods. Okay. Last section. April 14th, 1936, 10 a.m. So this is the next day. We meet a housemate, Leonard Nair Holmes. And the way they explain it, like, kind of at the beginning is that they have all these parties and stuff. So, like, random people will just stay there for, like, extended periods of time because they're on this mountain. It's secluded. It's hard to get to. And they describe Leo as, like, a super drunk. They talk about him not remembering, like, an entire year. So, he gets up and he has no idea that anything bad has happened. And Flora pulls him aside, like, into his room, I guess. I don't know where he was sleeping, but... She tells him that the girls have been kidnapped and he seems like super calm, but like also hung over. And he asks if Flora cleaned up and she tells Leo that she did what she could, referring to the compact, and she did it for Iris. Leo replies that she did it for all of us, not just Iris. A rising tide sinks all boats, but we obviously don't know what they're talking about or what's in this compact or why it's a problem. And she wants to go tell them about it this mystery thing. And he tells her that the truth won't do any good. And he basically says that he thinks that someone just wants money. And that narrows it down to basically everyone because everyone wants money and everyone knows that Ellingham's rich. And on top of it, like whoever did this had the opportunity because they're in this like excluded location. So then Albert knocks on the door and he instructs that Leo has one hour to make invisible ink. And Flora basically assumes it's to mark the ransom money. And then we kind of like learn why he even has this skill. And he talks about he always like mixing paint and making makeup and nail polish and stuff. And they're like, grab your stuff. You can use anything at the school, but this has to be done. He collects like beakers and all the stuff he needs from his room. And he walks downstairs as if he didn't have a care in the world. And that's how it ends. That's how we're ending this section. They make it seem like, oh, that makes him guilty. But like, he just seems like a really aloof person that doesn't care about anything but himself. So whatever. So let's get into my lingering questions. So my first question is, did Iris and Alice actually die? Or are they like, what happened? Because if Alice lived, she could have had a child and then the child would come back and claim this Ellingham fortune because they talk about how like at this point Alice would be like in her 90. Obviously we all want to know what was in that compact that Flora grabbed and what her and Leo are hiding pertaining to that. 
And then I, my last two questions is why is Stevie so awkward and weird and not a functioning human? And how am I going to survive three books? So then additionally, I have some theories. So one of my theories is that like Iris planned her kidnapping as like a game, but it went wrong. And then I also thought like another version of that would be like, she wanted to divorce Albert, but she like wanted money. So she planned this kidnapping and the ransom to get the money and then she was gonna like run off with Alice or something. I don't know. So Hayes is a fraud, obviously, like with the zombie movie thing. David is potentially like a future love interest. We kind of talked about that for Stevie. And then I don't think that we've been introduced to the killer of Dottie yet. I just don't think we're like far enough in. And I said it could have been a student or a past student of the school because they're all supposedly like geniuses. And that would explain how they knew like the school area. It could be like several students. But like the only problem with that is like Dottie says it was a past party goer. I don't know. It still could be a past student. The whole thing's weird. And then I just said I hope someone else dies present day to spice this up. So we're here. We're done. So thank you for listening. And just a reminder, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at the Jolly Reader Podcast. You can subscribe and get notifications for when part two is posted. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review because it helps other crewmates find the podcast. And even better, share with the entire universe, every single person you know. And if you like secondhand embarrassment, stay tuned for the outtakes because I'm sure there'll be several because my dogs were rotten today. And I'm going to go play Castle Panic with Allie and do laundry because now I'm done. Woo! So I will talk to you next week on Tuesday for the second half and or part, who knows, of Truly Devious. So until we sail again, this has been the Jolly Reader. Bone Voyage. Hey, you made it to the outtakes. Let's go. This is a test. Is this working? Ahoy and all that. See how this goes. Um, It says April. It says my notes. Anyways, April. Um, well, uh, the, and she says her mother's look says we kind of wanted the, out the, oh, so when he's in the middle of recording, recording, when he's in the middle of telling this riddle, pause, little bean, that would be my daughter. Anyways, so we have eyes on the police station, take 25 Mmm, baby. What? It's okay. Just wave next. Love you. Anyways, I'm going to start over. I got the whole gang here. Go lay down. So, um, chapter five. We meet Janelle, and she's the one. Oh my gosh. I have to go let the dogs out. Hold on. Okay, I'm just going to start over because I lost my place. Rory is driving me crazy. Okay. Hey, stop hon- went out on Rory. Down. Ugh, she might have to go out again. Jeez. Yeah, Rory just likes to stand outside in the cold, even though we're supposed to have blizzard-like conditions. <clears throat> and last time we had blizzard-like conditions, a week after we moved in, our fence snapped. Anyways. <clears throat> okay. Where are we at? April 13th. My gosh, I have a million pages left. We're not even into this. Rory, I shut the door. How- You're just gonna hear a dog being a butt in the background. So anyways, Allie Key, or Ellie, Allie, wow. 
Hey, sunshine, what are you doing in here? Anyways, <clears throat> um, you can buy it at Burlington. Burlington? No, not the coat factory. Maybe it is Burlington. Oh my goodness. Okay, anyways. Okay, let's see. Where are we at? Okay. And then Allie, uh, I'm going to call her Allie forever. Boring Janelle. Uh, not Janelle. Boring Nicole. Not Nicole. That was from the first book. He asked being, dude, I can't remember his name. So many of them. David. Okay. Then on top of it, Sonny, come here. I am Allie. And you are with me to my mom.